Father, we thank you that though we are not promised tomorrow, we have today. We have right now to choose you. And Father, you are faithful. You always hear the heart cry of the sincere, of the downcast, of the needy. We pray that you will visit with us today. Open our eyes. Open our hearts. Open our minds to your truth today. Let this word that you have for us speak to us. Let it reach us. Father, let it challenge and change us. In the precious name of your Son, we pray. Amen. Today is January 28th. Today marks the 21st anniversary of one of the most tragic occurrences in our nation's history. 21 years ago, on January 28th, 1986, the Space Shuttle Challenger was launched into the sky. This, this amazing marvel of technology had 10 million parts, all of which had to function and do their jobs for a successful launch. On that day, almost to this minute, at 11.39 in the morning, 9,999,999 of those parts worked perfectly. One of those parts, an O-ring seal failed, causing a flame leak that within 73 seconds of liftoff caused an explosion, instantly killing all seven members on board. We all remember it. A watching world was shocked. Families mourned. A nation grieved. The entire space shuttle program was shut down for the next 32 months. Out of 10 million parts, only one failed. It was so close. So close to a perfect launch. Almost perfect. Almost. Seven years ago, almost to the day, January 30th, 2000, in Atlanta, Georgia, during Super Bowl 34, the Tennessee Titans found themselves with an amazing opportunity. With a minute and 54 seconds left in the game, they had the ball at their own 10-yard line. Their task was clear. March down the field, score a touchdown, win the game, become Super Bowl champions. The drive was beautiful. Pass play after pass play, completion after completion, and as the last second on the clock ticked away and the game was over, the Tennessee Titans found that they had gone 89 yards. They needed to go 90. Almost Super Bowl champions. They almost had their names etched into sports history. One yard short of champions. Almost champions. Almost. We all remember later that year, the election of 2000. It'll live in infamy. Out of a record 105 million votes that were cast that evening, Al Gore found that he had gained 51 million of those votes. An incredible number. But he fell just 537 Floridian votes short 
of becoming 43rd president of the United States. Oh, the, the debate and the lawsuits and the churn would continue over the next weeks. But the finding held up. 537 votes short. 0.00001% short. Almost president. Almost. What do these three illustrations remind us? Well, almost doesn't really count, does it? The reality is that almost successful is the same thing as utter failure. We can't look back today at a successful Challenger shuttle launch. We, we don't refer to the Tennessee Titans as Super Bowl 34 champions. And in coming history books, you'll never see the words President Al Gore ever mentioned. See, it doesn't matter how close you get, how far you've gone, how much you've done if the goal isn't met. Almost. There's no greater tragedy in life than almost. We define it as very nearly, just short of the goal, not quite accomplished. It implies that a good deal of the journey was traveled. A large part of the effort was made, but fell just short of the finish line. The scriptures contain a lot of almost stories, but none quite as tragic as the one that's in our text today. Turn with me to Acts chapter 25. We're going to start at verse 23. First, a little bit of context while you're turning. The Apostle Paul had many enemies. In the work of the Lord, you always do. They hounded him constantly. They beat him. They lied about him. They tried to kill him. And now they had Paul in chains. The new Roman procurator, Festus, was trying Paul on accusations brought against him by the Jewish community, by his enemies. The problem was that Festus didn't see what Paul was being accused of was something so serious of warranting the death penalty. Paul was accused of speaking and preaching about a man named Jesus who had died, who was crucified on the cross and rose from the dead three days later. Why did, why did that warrant the death penalty? But see, Festus was facing so much pressure from the Jewish community, he had no choice. So he came up with a plan. I don't know what to accuse Paul of, but I'll bring him before King Agrippa I'll have King Agrippa interview him. He'll find something. He'll tell me what to write down and we'll be done with it. We'll accuse Paul of that. So here we are, verse 23. So the next day, when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at Festus' command, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with us, you see this man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore, I have brought him out before you and especially you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, 
I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not specify the charges against them. Chapter 26, verse 1. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. Stop here. Okay, Paul, the stage is ready. It's yours. The scene is set. The crowd is hushed. They're awaiting your defense. Work your rhetorical magic, Paul. Do it. Make a case defending yourself. I I love what happens here. Paul is in chains and he badly needs to defend himself. He He needs to make his argument clear. His life is on the line. He could be killed. He could be put to death for this. But you know what? He doesn't care about his life. He said in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He doesn't worry about the outcome of this trial or his life. He knows that his life is in God's hands. He's got the service of the Lord on his mind. Five chapters earlier in Acts 20, verse 22, when talking about his circumstances, his chains, his trials, he states, none of these things move me. Paul isn't moved by his dire circumstances in life. However grim things may look, he doesn't care about what potentially might happen. He doesn't care about the odds. His eyes aren't on his circumstances, his accusers, his potential fate. His eyes are fixed on his Savior, the God who's never failed him and never would. He's not moved by his chains, but he jumps at the opportunity and a chance to serve God to witness about him. Look what happens. He sees an opportunity to witness to the king and win him to the Lord. He needs to make a defense for himself. He doesn't care. I'm going to witness to you, King Agrippa, how easy it would be for us to get caught up in the accusations against us, to launch out against our accusers or to drown in fear and self-pity. Paul is a man of faith and he gives us such a wonderful example. He sees the greater mission, the greater good, the larger opportunity. In the next 25 verses, Paul gives his personal testimony. He tells of his early life, his persecution of Christians. Jump down to verse 9. Indeed, Paul says, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul, you're uh, you're not helping your case here. This was an angry man and he told it how it was. He said what he was like. This was a man bent on doing anything and everything that he could to defy, to quench, to stop, to rebut the gospel of Christ. Have you ever known such hatred towards Christ, towards his people, towards the things of the Lord? Have you ever seen such anger, such focus, such focus placed on mocking the followers of Christ? Stopping something good that's happening. Such hatred. Enraged, he says. You think God can't change something like that? You think God can't turn around that life? 
You think that hatred and rage and anger can't be melted away in the light of God's forgiveness and His love? Paul is presenting a contrast of the man he was before and the man he became after his experience, his salvation. Something changed. Something changed that turned Paul. And if God can change Paul, and if he can melt the hardest heart and turn rage and anger and hatred into love, he can save anybody. Something happened on the way to a city called Damascus one day. Let's keep reading. Verse 12. While thus occupied as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul. This was before his name was changed to Paul. Why are you persecuting me? Verse 15. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. God can reach the unreachable. Paul's encounter with God that day on that Damascus road led to his instant salvation and turned the greatest enemy of Christianity into its greatest advocate. Paul would never be the same again. And the gospel of Jesus Christ received its greatest human spokesman. Paul goes on to tell how God changed his life, how he obeyed the calling and worked tirelessly to spread the gospel near and far to tell about the saving message of Jesus Christ everywhere he went to anyone who would listen. How does a raging angry, hateful enemy of Christ become the greatest Christian missionary that ever lived. The greatest advocate of Christianity. Author of over half of the New Testament. It's only through the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. Nothing else can produce a genuine change in life. Nothing can do that. Twelve-step programs can't do that. Self-help programs can't do that. Education can't do that. Self-will and determination can't do that. A strong support system of friends can't do that. Only Christ can produce genuine, lasting change like that. Only Christ can wipe out our past and give us a clean start. Change. Only Christ can produce it. Only the power of the Holy Spirit can change our course. In these 25 verses, Paul relays the greatest turnaround story in history. The greatest Christian testimony ever known. His defense was essentially to tell how his own life was touched, how his own life was changed by the power of Christ, and how he was obeying God's commission, God's call 
to evangelize the world and tell them about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Verse 19, Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God and do works befitting repentance. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. King Agrippa, I'm just doing what God called me to do. Verse 24, now as he made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, Paul, you're beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. Paul, you're crazy. You've, you've gone mad. You don't know what you're talking about. Verse 25, but Paul said, I'm not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. And now we come to the heart of our tragedy. Verse 26, Paul continues. For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things. For I'm convinced that none of these things escapes his attention since this thing was not done in a corner. Paul makes it clear. Do you think for a minute that a king wouldn't know what's going on in his kingdom? That he wouldn't know about the rumblings of his people? No, King Agrippa knew all about Jesus. He knew full well of the one who was crucified by his own people, the one who rose from the dead three days later. He knew all about Jesus Christ. He knew that he claimed he was the Son of God. He knew that his crucifixion was as a sacrificial lamb in the place of each and every human being. He died for the sins of all mankind. That's what the people were saying, that's what Paul was preaching. That's what Christians were holding to and testifying about. He knew all about that claim. He knew about Christians. He knew all about their faith and what was behind it. You can know it all, but it's not enough. You can know all about God. You can know all about Jesus Christ. You can know all about salvation. You can even know all about how to get saved. You could be preaching a message you can know it all, but that doesn't make you a believer, a Christian. That doesn't give you salvation. It's just step one, knowledge, to know about Jesus. That's good, step one. But it's not enough just to know. Knowledge isn't going to get you into heaven. Knowledge isn't going to save you. Verse 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. Step two, King Agrippa believed. Paul knew he did. He believed the prophecies of the one who would come to save mankind. You can not only know all about Christ, you can believe it. You can believe the story. You can believe that he came to save mankind. You can know it all from an intellectual perspective. You can believe it all. You can believe in Him. You can even believe that salvation is only through Him. You can know the truth. You can believe the truth. But it's still not enough. 
Knowledge is key. Belief is key. But even together, not enough. There's still one more critical act. You've got to go all the way. You've got to receive it. You know it. You believe it. You've got to want it. Give him your heart. Give him your life. Here's King Agrippa. He's just one short step away from going all the way. One short step away from eternity in heaven. He knows the truth. He believes the truth. So close to salvation. Let's see if he receives it. Verse 28. And I'm reading out of the New King James Version because some of the more modern translations have taken some liberties with this verse and diluted its impact. This stays closest to the original text. Verse 28. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. When he had said these things, the king stood up as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves saying, this man is doing nothing deserving of death or of chains. Almost. Almost persuaded. One more almost Christian. He was at the doorstep, the threshold of salvation, and he walked away unsaved. You almost persuaded me. So close. So tragic. What was King Agrippa's legacy from this portion we just read? Well, we can walk away knowing that King Agrippa knew the truth. He believed the truth. He freed Paul. Paul was freed after that meeting with Agrippa. He saw nothing wrong with preaching about Christ. He became a friend to Christians. But he lost his soul. Almost to heaven. But he ended up in hell. Agrippa was so close. He came so far. He was in the right place at the right time. What a legacy. The Apostle Paul himself witnessed to him. He had the knowledge. He had the belief. He had the conviction. But he didn't go all the way. What did it account to? What did all of that add up to? He almost gave Christ his heart. He almost gained eternal life. So close. Shouldn't it count for something? He did some good there. And he knew and he believed. Shouldn't it count? Sadly, friend, it doesn't. There's no almost Christianity. There's no close enough commitment. There's no in the ballpark believer. How does it happen? How do you come so close to the truth and walk away unchanged? Walk away with nothing in your hand. How do you become an almost Christian? Well, I want us to take a look at three people that were in the room around King Agrippa that day. And we're going to get some insight on what was running through his head when he walked away. Why was he almost persuaded first? Let's look at the person sitting beside him. Bernice. A little background on Bernice. Bernice was his brother's daughter. 
his niece, who he was living with in a very immoral relationship. She was a sinful, immoral companion. His brother's daughter, his niece, Agrippa and Bernice were in an incestuous, sinful relationship. And perhaps Agrippa realized that committing to Christ would mean losing her. He was unwilling to let go of his sin. Can you imagine looking at your life of sin, saying, no, I don't think God can give me anything better. I want to hold on to that. First of all, there's nothing worth holding on to that is worth paying the price of your soul. Nothing. Hell isn't worth whatever sin is keeping you away from Christ. And face it, second of all, that sin is never going to give you long-term contentment. Sin satisfies for a little while and it always leaves you empty and cold and dark and hungry and wanting more. God knows all about more. God specializes in more. Only He can replace your life of sin with a life of contentment and victory and more blessings and more joy than you ever dreamed possible. So there she was on one side, Bernice representing the king's life of sin. Who was on his other side? Festus. A man's man. A no-nonsense man. A man who thought Paul was crazy. Perhaps Agrippa thought to himself, I, I can't become a Christian. Festus will think I'm crazy too. And because he wanted the praise of men above anything else, he rejected Jesus. What a trap. What a snare. Our image. Our image before our friends. I, I can't follow my convictions because I don't want to look bad in front of my friends. I want to impress them. I want to be like them. I want to be liked by them. I, I worry what people will think of me. I want to be liked. I want to be respected by the world. Once again, is that image, is that impression worth paying the price of your soul? Is it worth keeping you from Christ? Charles Spurgeon said it so well. He said, alas, how many are influenced by fear of men? Oh, you cowards. Will you be damned out of fear? Will you sooner let your souls perish than show your manhood by telling a poor mortal that you defy his scorn? Dare you not follow the right, though all men in the world should call you to do the wrong? You cowards. How you deserve to perish who have not enough soul to call your souls your own, but cower down before the sneers of fools. Wow. Who are you following? Who are you trying to please, to impress, to imitate? Are you lined up behind a trail of fools headed to destruction? This was Agrippa's lot. I want the praise and the respect of the world. Lastly, who else was in the room directly in front of him? Paul. A strong man, a noble man, and a man of wisdom and character, but a man in chains nonetheless. Perhaps Agrippa thought, well, if I become a Christian, I might end up like him 
in chains. I'm a very important person. I can't have that. I fear what might happen in the future. Look, I don't want to go through what Paul's going through. I don't want to go through trials. I don't want to go through tribulations. I don't want to be persecuted because of my faith and my Christianity. I'm afraid about the future as a follower of Christ. What's going to happen to me? Again, Spurgeon says, Oh, that men were wise enough to see that suffering for Christ is honor. That loss for truth is gain. That the truest dignity rests in wearing the chain upon the arm rather than endure the chain upon the heart. His sin, his friends, his image, his fear. They all kept King Agrippa from taking that final step. From receiving Christ as his own personal Savior. Was it worth it? Is there anything worth keeping us from Christ? What a tragedy. A man who knew it all. A man who believed it all. A man who had his chance. But a man who played the fool. He was a moral coward. He loved his sins. He wouldn't repent. He loved the praise of men. He would do anything to get it. He loved the comfort of his current lifestyle. He wouldn't give it up. He feared the future as a follower of Christ. And so sadly, he passed. He said no to Christ and yes to all of those things he held so dear. And what did they lead him to? History tells us that not long after his encounter with Paul, within a year, Agrippa lost all he held so dear. He lost the woman at his side with whom he had no business living. He lost his throne. He lost the praise and respect of his people. He lost his security. His reign lasted only three short years and he died. He didn't just lose his kingdom. He lost his life. And worse, he lost his soul. He who almost became a Christian lost everything. Almost. Almost. The saddest word in our English language. The most tragic of stories. Almost. So close. You find yourself there today? Have you come so far, but still come short? Christ is knocking this very moment on your heart's door. What's holding you back? What is it? Is there some sin that you're holding on to and not willing to give up and that's keeping you from Christ? Are there individuals and voices in your life that are keeping you from Christ? Do you worry about your image? Do you worry what people will think of you? Do you worry about what you may face in the future as a follower of Christ? I've heard so many people say... I I would become a Christian. I would come to Christ, but you know what? There's no good way to end that sentence. I, I would come to Christ, but I've been hurt in the past by hypocritical Christians. So sad. You're going to let your past dictate your future? I would come to Christ, but Look, I don't believe in organized religion. Yeah, well, get in line. Neither do I. 
Neither did Jesus Christ. He didn't like religious hierarchies and religious boards and organized religion. This isn't about religion at all. It's about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's about reconciling what's between you and God. What's standing in your way? Ask yourself today. Whatever it is, just ask yourself this question. Is it worth paying the price of my soul? Hell is too high a price to pay. It's forever. It's too high a price to pay for any sin, any friend, any image, any fear, anything that's holding you back. Are you there today? You're in the right place. You've got the right people around you. You're listening to the right message. You've got the opportunity. Take it. Take it. Take Christ today. Let Him forgive your sins. Let Him come into your heart. Let Him change your life forever. Look, you can attend every church and every church meeting around. You may have gone to church all your life. You can even serve in a church. You can know all about Jesus Christ, how the Son of God was born into this world, how He was crucified on the cross for your very sins, how He rose from the dead three days later. You can know that He took your place. He paid a price you couldn't pay and He offers you salvation. You can know all about that. You can believe it all in your head. But if it doesn't reach your heart, what purpose has it served? I heard it said recently, it's 18 inches from your head to your heart. You came 18 inches away from heaven. So close. Almost. Will your fate be the same as that of King Agrippa? 18 inches away from heaven. Almost persuaded. Almost saved. But entirely and utterly lost. Don't let that be your story. Don't let almost sum up your life. A great old hymn written by Philip Bliss sums it up so well. Almost persuaded. Now to believe. Almost persuaded Christ to receive. Seems now some soul may say, Go Spirit, go thy way. Some more convenient day on thee I'll call. Almost persuaded, come, come today. Almost persuaded, turn not away. Jesus invites you here. Angels are lingering near. Prayers rise from hearts so dear. O wanderer, come. Almost persuaded, harvest is past. Almost persuaded, doom comes at last. Almost cannot avail. Almost is but to fail. Sad, sad that bitter wail. Almost, but lost. Let's bow our heads. Friend, don't let that be your story. You can go from being an almost Christian to an altogether Christian right now. Don't wait another minute. Like the song said, tomorrow may never come for you. Tomorrow's not guaranteed. Tomorrow might very well be too late. But it's not too late today. Your story isn't finished yet. 
Don't let anything stand in your way. It doesn't matter what the sin or who the friends or what people will think. Grab the opportunity for heaven right now. Right now while, while God is speaking to you. Right now while your heart is tender. Right now while you're, while you're thinking seriously about it. Right now while you're still able. Receive the living Son of God as your Savior. And you know what? You'll never be sorry you did. You're facing the greatest decision of your life. You're almost persuaded. Become altogether persuaded. Make the decision for Christ right now. If you're making that decision, if you're making that decision today, right now, pray in your heart this simple prayer with me. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. And I need your forgiveness so badly. Jesus, I'm tired of living a life of defeat. I'm tired of living a life of despair. I believe that you died for my sins. I want to turn from my sins. I accept your free gift of salvation and I want to receive it right now. I invite you to come into my heart and my life. Change me, Lord. I want to trust and follow you as Lord and Savior of my life. And if you're still almost persuaded, we're going to close in prayer and we're going to pray for you. Heavenly Father, we know that there is a war raging within some hearts here right now. We know that a battle for eternity is taking place. Open those hearts. Open those eyes, Father. Let them see that you have already fought and won the battle for them. We pray that they will open their hearts to you. We pray that they will receive you and begin to experience the abundant life that you want for each one of us. We thank you so much for your Son. We thank you for that ultimate sacrifice that paid a debt we couldn't pay for ourselves. Thank you for your faithfulness in pursuing us. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for your mercy to us. Your love is so much more than we deserve or could ever fathom. We thank you for it. We love you and we pray in the name of your Son. Amen. If you made that decision today, if you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, share it. Share it. Let us rejoice with you. And as you begin to experience a new life, abundant blessings and peace forever. Amen. God bless you.